The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. As we continue our sermon series through this Gospel, we're in chapter 10, uh, page 815. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, Matthew chapter 10, we'll read from verses 34 until verse 42. And so I invite you to listen carefully to this, the public reading of God's word and worship him in the way that you receive it. Matthew chapter 10 and verses 34 to 42. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and seek his blessing as we receive that word today. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, our loving God, we plead with you now that you would come to us and bless us as we receive your word. Father, come and feed your children. Take your word and sanctify us this day by your truth. Your word is truth, and we pray that you would open up our eyes to to see and indeed, but to behold marvelous, wondrous things from your law, and that would, you would use it in each of our lives. Grant us grace, Lord God, that we would abide in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that, that by the power of his Spirit, we would bear much fruit, showing ourselves to be his disciples indeed. Hear us and bless us then, for we ask for these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's an interesting sermon title, isn't it? Have I, or I have not come to bring peace. If you'd just seen that, those words, you might have thought, what scandalous words. Uh, not the kind of message you expected to come to church and hear this morning. No peace. I've not come to bring peace. How contrary to the peace on earth and goodwill to all message of Christmas as we move into the, the holiday season. I thought Jesus was the Messiah. I thought that was the message of Matthew's gospel that he is the, the Isaiah 9, chapter 6, uh, 9, verse, chapter 9, verse 6, the Prince of Peace, right? Well, if these uh, words feel scandalous, if they feel a bit shocking this morning, I think that's a good thing. We're intended to be sort of shocked by some of the words of Jesus we see even throughout our text and throughout uh, the Sermon on the Mount and even beyond as we've seen. Uh, uh, we, we certainly want to reconcile what we read this morning with what we also read. To say that Jesus has not bring peace tells kind of only one side of the truth, of course. But friends, let's feel the full weight of these words this morning. Let's not let them die the death of a thousand qualifications. 
I think the shock factor is intended to, to strike us with a sense of the radical call which is upon all those who would, would be followers of Jesus Christ, all disciples, and that flows out of a sense of the unrivaled greatness and the glory of Christ and the kingdom which he brings. It flows out of an understanding that this, is a king, this world's kingdom is under judgment and will in the end be destroyed. His kingdom is the kingdom that endures forever and ever. And for those who have been given eyes to see that, for those who have been made to understand that, we understand the radical call which uh, comes upon all of us, that we are to embrace his kingdom by living as his kingdom disciples in this world. And part of doing so is understanding that there's a sense in which we will never be at peace, not in this world, right? This is a, there's a war going on. There is a, a mission to be fulfilled. I say amen to what Pastor Hulse said last week, and I said the same thing earlier about how this section, on the one hand, it focuses our attention on the uniqueness of that apostolic mission, the work that the apostles would do, but it also speaks more generally to that which will be true of all followers of Christ, all his disciples. We're going to see that especially as we move to that last section and our third point and focus on what Jesus says about those who receive these apostles. Even they are part of the mission. We are all called into the battle. We are all sent on a mission. We are all disciples of Jesus Christ and sent out as missionaries in this world. And so this morning we really learn about what will, what must characterize every one of us as disciples of Christ. Our message this morning is this. We see the, the radical loyalty and love as well as the rewarded reception of Christ's kingdom missionary disciples. We have three points this morning, three things which we note about the disciples of Christ as we look at our text together this morning. The first is this, that they embrace the family dividing sword of the gospel. The family dividing sword of the gospel. Indeed, let those words sink in well. Verse 34, our Lord says, do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. The disciples have already heard that what must have felt like a strange, in many ways disconcerting message about just what the arrival of the kingdom would mean for them. You know, Israel was expecting this this kingdom of peace and it would unify all of people, all of Israel would come together and they would unite around the messianic king as he would come. And here they're learning, no, the, the arrival of the kingdom will mean you will face hostility persecution. The kingdom will bring a violent response from those who oppose it. Indeed, sadly, by and large, that would be the reality for the covenant nation Israel. In verses 35 of, and 36 of our text, Jesus cites the prophecy of Micah. And in the prophecy of, of Micah, he, Micah describes how judgment is going to come upon the nation, the nations, Israel and Judah, such that there will, they will, the nations will experience social upheaval. They're going to come under judgment and that they will be under the siege of their enemies, but under the threat of their enemies, they're going to turn inward, turn against each other. Things will be so bad that you won't even be able to trust your friend or your neighbor. You will no longer even be able to trust your own family members. And so he writes in Micah chapter 7, verse 6, For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies and the 
a man's enemies are the men of his own house. And that's the verse which Jesus cites in our text. He really proclaims that I am bringing about, I have come to set, I am bringing about the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. The prophecies are fulfilled in him, in Christ. And I suppose that's true in various ways. It's, it's true in the sense that ultimately the nation, the covenant nation, will turn against him. He will announce the kingdom, but the kingdom, but the nation, the covenant people, will reject the kingdom. They'll reject the king. In doing so, they will show themselves that they are under the judgment of God themselves. The nation will be divided and that the, the enemies of the kingdom, those who oppose the kingdom, will be divided from those who receive the kingdom, particularly from those in this context who are going and proclaiming the kingdom. Jesus and his disciples are on the side of God, and they are opposed by those who come as the enemies of God and come in opposition against his kingdom. Jesus Christ himself, of course, is the one who would most supremely face that hostility and that rejection and that the nation would even take and they would crucify him, their Messiah. On the other hand, this is fulfilled in a sense, we might say, well, all are under judgment. Indeed, the Messiah himself, he comes to face that judgment. He's the one who himself has to become the enemy, even the enemy of God, we know, for our sake, when Jesus took Upon himself, our our sins, he was counted as the enemy and he was judged in our place to the end that we might have peace with our God. So so we understand this morning, don't we? We understand that there are many levels on which it's true that Jesus could say, I have not come simply to bring peace. Not immediately, certainly. And ultimately, there would be, there will be no peace for those who reject Christ and reject his gospel. This uh, dividing sword of the gospel, uh, we can say that it, it served to reveal those who were and those who were not truly of Israel. That is to say that the, the true Israel of God, the 12 tribes would be gathered around Christ and his 12 uh, disciples, the 12 apostles. So the gospel was indeed a dividing sword, and by citing Micah's prophecy, Jesus made it clear that it would even cut down in the middle of families. It would even divide families. The disciples of Christ would become enemies, yes, even of their own household. He says in verse 35, for I have come to set, and then he cites the prophecy of Micah. It's a little different than what we read because he's citing the, uh, the Septuagint, but the words there in our text, we see it says, a man against his father, a daughter against, his, against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Verse 36, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This certainly speaks to us this morning as disciples of Christ. If, if we are to be follow, followers of Christ, he calls us unto a loyalty to him which transcends every other Loyalty, if the, if the opposition of the world against Christ, if the, if the world's hatred of him forces us to make a choice, even between him and our own family members, we know that we must forsake every other loyalty for his sake. We, we might ask the question this morning, but didn't the gospel sometimes unite families? Didn't they come together in, in their reception of Christ and the gospel? And the answer is, of course they did. We need to understand that this is This is prophecy, 
uh, prophetic oracles are often cast in an absolute form, as one writer describes this. That is, they're sort of described in the absolute, in, in, in the extreme. One might take the the words this morning to to suggest that Jesus was saying that every single uh, family relationship would be broken. All would be divided. Of course, that didn't that all, didn't always happen. This was not the universal experience of all of Christ's disciples. We praise God for the fact that often opposite is the case. Reminded that the gospel is a gospel of grace, and the rule of grace is not first and foremost to divide, but to unite. And of course, we have wonderful examples indeed of how the the gospel brought families together. We think of whole households that were baptized in, in, in in the book of Acts. And when I say that as disciples, we we embrace the, the, the uh, family-dividing sword of the gospel. I'm not suggesting that the, our Lord's telling us to go out and seek division and, and enmity. But it does mean that we embrace the gospel. We embrace Christ. We cling to him and to his word with a, uh, such devotion that we're willing to cling to him even when opposition to his word brings opposition, brings, brings hostility and rejection from the world, even when it comes from our own family members. But no, we don't seek out enmity, quite the contrary. We know that we are, we are we're commanded to, to strive as much as possible to live peaceable lives, to be at peace with all men. Romans chapter 12, verse 18, even unbelievers were to repay evil with good and so forth. We were to do so praying that, that God would even use our testimony of goodness in the lives of those who are his enemies and do what he did in the, in the case of the Apostle Paul. Take one who was the worst persecutor of the church, an enemy of God's people, and, and transform him and make him into a servant of Christ. Our prayer is that the enemies of the gospel would be converted and that they would come with us and serve the Lord and love Christ together with us. And we'll say more about that this morning. But, but that brings us to our second point this morning. The second thing I would want us to note about Christ's disciples, which is that they love him more than family or even more than their own life. They love him more than family. They love him even more than their own, than, than self. To refuse that, that family dividing sword of the gospel, to be will, unwilling to be rejected by family for the sake of Christ is to love family and even love self more than Christ. And, and Jesus makes it clear that, that such is not the call of, uh, upon his two true disciples. It's not the character of the true disciples. He says in verse 37, whoever loves me or, mo- or loves, sorry, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In one sense, of course, we we know that, that no one is worthy. No one is worthy to receive Christ or his kingdom. We don't receive the kingdom on the basis of our own worth. Of course, we receive Christ. We receive salvation as a free gift of God by grace through faith alone in a sense that the only thing that makes us unworthy is understanding our unworthiness the only thing that qualifies us to enter into the kingdom is recognizing that not we but Christ he alone is the worthy one we see his worth and those 
who perceive his worth. Indeed, they enter in, but they understand that in, 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 in being granted entrance into the kingdom and being made to be those who embrace Christ, he embraces us with a love which must transcend every other love, a love for anything else. And that's a marvelous thing to think that God has loved us with a, a love greater than any love we might experience even from our family or anywhere else in this world. Just think about that, dear Christian, this morning in granting you to see that, to understand just that. In this way, God has qualified you. God has, has, has made you worthy. God has made you the object of his kingdom love. You've been brought into a relationship of love with your God. You've been given new life. It's true of every, every true believer in Christ. Christ has, everyone for, to whom Christ has thus qualified to, to receive him or enter into his kingdom, you've given up your life in order to receive his life and your new life in him. Your life is now in him. I do think that, I do think that as we look at verse 38, it does speak to a willingness to experience martyrdom, that is to die for the sake of the gospel. But more generally, it speaks to that which is the experience of every true believer. Indeed, if you are a Christian, you have, you have taken up your cross and followed Christ. The old you has died that the new you might live. And that's why the call to discipleship then is a, is a call to take up your cross each day and put to death the old you. Verse 39 says, whoever finds his life will lose it. That is, if you, if you lose Christ by really seeking the old, seeking your own life, living for that which you were, well, that's not true discipleship, is it? If you refuse him by clinging to your life in this world, well, in the end, you'll find that you'll lose your life. Not only will you die, but you will experience the second Death. You'll even come under the eternal judgment. That's not the experience of the true disciple. But Jesus continues, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, in, 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 in coming to Christ and giving up our own, our, our old life, our own life, that is, our old life, which is identified which, with sin in this world, which is under judgment, we give that up, but we gain something new. New life, life in, in God's kingdom, life with Christ forever and ever, eternal life. And we live that life even now. We live that life as we live for him, as we love him, as we love him more than, than anything else in this world, even, even more than we love our own families, even lo- more than we love our own life. Love. L- love is that central feature of life in God's kingdom, isn't it? That was true even as the the kingdom came to its old covenant expression. The Lord had called his people Israel to love him above all else. We think of the the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God, heart and soul and might. Love him. Well, if that was true in the old covenant, how much more is that to be true in the new covenant as God's love has been more fully revealed to us, how much, how true must it have been for the disciples of Christ? What is it that would drive them to carry out their apostolic 
mission. We know what it is. It's the love of Christ. They would be constrained and compelled by the love of Christ. And brothers and sisters, is it not true of you and me this morning? What is it that will compel us, constrain us to live as, as, as Christ's missionary disciples in this world? It's his love. In fact, it's, it's not our love. It's, it's his love. Our love flows out of his love. What, what, what does the Apostle, uh, Apostle John write? But that we love him. We love because he first loved us. Our love for Christ that compels us to live as his disciples flows out of his great love for us. This missionary call is not a call to go out and do any kind of work out of our own resources. Verse 38 makes that clear. Don't miss this. It's a call to follow him. It's the one who follows me, Jesus says. You see, to, 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 to come to Christ is to, to be in Christ. It's to, to abide in Christ. It's to abide in, in, in the love of Christ, as Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 9. It's to abide in his cross love. The, the call to take up our crosses is, is to be a reminder of the cross. It is, it's Christ. He's the one who, who loved God and loved neighbor even more than he loved his own life. He laid down his life for us at the cross. And it's that love in which compels and empowers us to take up our crosses and to live as his kingdom disciples. And speaking of living as missionary disciples, it's, it's that love which ought to move us to a great compassion for those who are lost. It's true that we, we desire to, to, to live at peace with all people in this world, even those who are unbelievers. And yet, as we think about these words, what did our Lord say? I, I did not come, that I, did not, I have not come to bring peace. I think this should remind us not only of, of the, 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 the opposition, opposition which we will face from the world, but it will remind us of what they, those who are lost, what they will face if they remain in their sins and without Christ. We think about the unbelievers all around us. Even when, to one degree or another, we're experiencing peace. Maybe we, we find that we're living well. Our, our unbelieving neighbors aren't particularly treating us so, so terribly. We should nonetheless, I think, live with a sense that we're not at peace because we have this concern for their souls. We could illustrate this by something I, I said last week. I was speaking, uh, commenting on the reading of the Old Testament scriptures about the Queen of Sheba, someone came up to me and asked a question about what I'd said. I'm not going to embarrass this person or mention her name, but, but she said to me, Dad, <laughs> you said we'd be there in the presence of Christ together with the Queen of Sheba worshiping, and how do you know for sure that the Queen of Sheba was saved? And I thought that's a good question. I should have been more clear on that. The reason I believe that is because the Bible teaches that it's the saints who will judge the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. And I believe the Queen of Sheba will be among us because of the words of our Lord, that the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. But to think that, that, that she'd be there condemning that wicked generation insofar as they rejected Christ, it's an astounding thought 
to think that, that our unbelieving friends, even our own family mem- members, will be there on the last day. And we'll have to be there, as, as, as the Lord pronounces, judgment against them unless they turn and repent. And we'll have to be there. We'll be there giving our amen to that. And in the one sense, of course, we're at peace that God's sovereign plan is being carried out. But there's a sense in which we don't live, we're not called to live with a peace about that. We're to be concerned about the soul's of the lost. We're to be concerned about the fact that there may be even some here this day in our midst. And here we are as we're worshiping God, we know that we're not at peace with them. And indeed, if you're one who's sitting here today and you've never truly trusted in Christ, you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, then we would plead with you. You are not at peace with your God. And the only way to know true peace is to see your sin. And, and to turn to the, the only one who can save you from your sins, the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and turn. And here God is inviting you. He's, he's inviting you with a, an offer of peace. If you would turn from, from your sins and trust in him, you will have your, your sins forgiven and given eternal life and called into a life of following him. Our prayer this morning is that you would, you would do just that, that indeed the Lord would give you no peace, no rest, until you turn and you find your peace and rest in Christ. And indeed, as, as, as disciples of Christ, we're, we're called, in a sense, not to live at peace, but to be those who fight. We press on. We fight the good fight of faith, yes, in our prayer for the, for the lost and in, in seeking to show them compassion. We're not to be at peace with the, the sin we see in our, soul, in our own lives. We're to, to fight against it and seek to put it to death. In every way, we're to call to to, 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 uh, to fight as we look forward to that ultimate peace which we will receive in the presence of Christ when he comes as the great Prince of Peace. And we think about that this morning as we move to our last point, which focuses our attention on the reward with which comes in connection with discipleship. The last thing we note about this, the disciples this morning is that they are received by those who receive him, Christ, and his reward. This is the last section, verses 40 to 42. Our text directs our attention not only to the suffering experienced by the disciples, but the reward that will be given. How wonderfully these, these words uh, remind us of that, that, that Romans 8, 18 message that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy even to be compared with that, that glory which will be revealed to us and it's a reward which will be for all true disciples, not just the 12 apostles, not just those who are on the, the front lines, so to speak, in terms of the, uh, the kingdom missionary enterprise. I think this reminds us that, yes, there will be those who will be uh, out preaching, in the case of the apostle, those who would be the official eyewitness testimonies of the, uh, 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 or those who would bear eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Christ. But there would be others who would be serving in more what we might call support roles, right? Receiving them, opening up their homes, showing hospitality, supporting them by giving them cups of cold water and so blessing them. 
Here Jesus promises that, that all will be rewarded. In fact, if you look at the, his words here, you notice that Jesus does not actually speak as directly to the reward given to the apostles. In a sense, he does so indirectly. You will be so blessed that I'm going to bless with a great reward even those who bless you with a, a cup of cold water. But, but, but he speaks more directly to the, re, the, the, the reward given to those who receive the apostles. They too are Christ's disciples. In a sense, I think this brings all of us to the same level. This is not, of course, not to deny what the Bible does say about different or varying degrees or rewards, but I don't think that's the point our Lord intends to bring out in this particular text. I think he really focuses our attention on that one common reward which all disciples will receive, even the inheritance of that kingdom of glory. So if you look at verse 41, where we we read about the reward of the prophet or the righteous person, what are we to make of this? In one sense, of course, all believers are the righteous ones, counted righteous in Christ and transformed into righteous ones. But perhaps this speaks to how the apostles in that, that prophetic role, they would be the ones openly preaching the ministry of righteousness. They would be known publicly as the righteous persons. This is interpreted uh, different ways, but I think that the correct interpretation here is that these ones, as well as those who support them, will all do so in the hope of receiving that, that, that common reward, so that the reward of the prophet, the reward of the righteous one, is the same as the one who receives the prophet or the righteous one. There's a unity of Christ's servants, which is brought out here in the reception of a common reward, and it's a unity which flows out of their union with Christ. In fact, if you stop and think about it, the truly astounding thing is not so much that, that one who simply gives a cold a cup of water to an apostle would receive the same reward as the apostle. No, the truly staggering thing is that Christ's servants share in his eternal reward. And that Jesus is the only truly, inherently, infinitely worthy one. And yet here in him, we, there's a unity. Uh, we're reminded that that, 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 that the Christ's servants sent forward as, as missionaries are one with him. He's the great missionary. The end of verse 40 reminds us that, that he's the one sent of the Father. But what grace that he brings his servants, he brings the apostles, he brings these little ones, as they're called in this text, onto the same level with himself. So we see in verse 40, they are made one with him, such that he says, whoever receives you receives me, Jesus is saying to the apostles, I am one with you, but he's also saying, I am one with those who receive you, because in receiving you, they receive me. And in him we are all brought, wonderfully brought in union with, 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 with even with God the Father. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Is that not marvelous? But what marvelous encouragement this was, not only for the suffering apostles, but for all of God's people, for the suffering church. You are one with me in my suffering, and just as surely as you share in my suffering, you will also share in my glory. You will by no means lose your reward, even fellowship with God in glory forever and ever. 
And by way of application this morning, this is not only about those future blessings, this is about enjoyment of the blessing even now as we, as we live as God's people amidst the suffering of this present world. Yes, the world will hate you, Jesus is saying, but you'll enjoy blessing, you'll enjoy fellowship with me as you receive each other, as you extend fellowship to one another. Brothers and sisters, let this encourage us this morning. Let it encourage us and also exhort us with regards to our own attitude about suffering and discipleship and fellowship amidst suffering in this world. You know, if more and more things in our society get so bad that intensity and hatred against Christ and his church becomes even worse, what are we going to do about it? And sit around and complain about it? It's easy for us to come together and complain about how bad the world is. Why do we do that? As servants of Christ, do we expect to have it better than he did? Do we expect that the servant is to live above the master? Have we not rightly learned from his words? Do we, do we think that Jesus came to bring peace, to bring us peace in this world? And to the extent that we find ourselves simply sinfully grumbling and complaining about how bad things are, I think we dishonor the words of our Lord, and we do well to repent this morning. And by his, his grace, let us see the evil in this world as an, an opportunity for radical kingdom discipleship. I was thinking about the fact that things aren't all so great these days. I think the way our, our, our nation is, is declining, maybe in many ways, society's getting worse in terms of spiritual decline. There's, there's, there, things aren't great economically. And here to think that that's in this particular context, this time in which we believe that the Lord has called us to, to go forth and plant a church. What a wonderful mission Christ has given us. Do we really, really believe it's possible? Of course we do. Even in, in the midst of a world which maybe an increasingly measure, increasing measure opposes Christ and his kingdom, we know that, 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 that the kingdom of Christ will advance, that the light will shine amidst the darkness, and God will, will bless our endeavors in this regard and in every way he calls us to live for him as we heed this radical call to live as his kingdom disciples, as we cling to his world cling to his word, even when the world, world more and more hates, even when our own, perhaps our, at times our own family, opposes Christ and his word. He calls us. He calls us to, 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 to cling to his word. He calls us to love each other with that, that kingdom love with which Christ has loved us. And that will translate into, yes, receiving each other and, and practicing hospitality and devoting ourselves together zealously unto fellowship he calls us in every way, in this way, to, to live as the family of God, to live as those who are bound together by, by cords that are strong, so strong that no amount of persecution in this world could ever break them. And he calls us to do so believing that just as we receive each other, we're receiving Christ himself, and Christ will give us his reward. The peace which we seek is not of this world, but we seek that kingdom which Christ has promised, a kingdom of of peace and everlasting righteousness and love and joy in the Holy Spirit, and we live as his kingdom people even now, as we live in such a way, walk in a manner worthy of such a great 
kingdom, the kingdom of glory, our, our Savior will, br- will bring it. And so in all of these ways, let's show ourselves to, the, to be the people who are indeed uh, seeking his kingdom. Let us live as his disciples. May God give us the grace to do so. Let's pray together. Lord, we do bless you and we praise you that indeed you have made us qualify. You've made us worthy in our Savior, Jesus Christ. You've made us to be the heirs of your kingdom. Father, we pray this morning that we would indeed be shocked by its greatness, astounded by it with a sense of your greatness and your glory. Lord, by your spirit, through your word, this morning, would you strengthen our faith, conform us more into the likeness of our Savior. Grant that, yes, we might more faithfully live as his kingdom disciples. Father, that we might go forth and we might make known your saving ways here in Raleigh and in South Wake County and wherever it is you send us. So, Lord, we pray that many others would come and know your great salvation and that they would join with us in worshiping and serving you and giving unto you the glory Do your name. Would you hear our prayer? For we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.